from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Were you surprised by what big news this was? I know, I feel like, like... The breakup of the Soviet Union did not get as much coverage as your breakup did. Oh, and rightly so. Yeah, yes, of course. I mean, look. That's Jimmy Kimmel talking, of course, to Miss Piggy and Kermit. It was 2015, and on the latest edition of The Muppet Show on ABC, the two characters had just broken up. Anything that happens to me is going to be front-page news. (laughs) And I'm kind of like the Donald Trump of love, you know? (laughs) Everything I do is huge. And, uh, and therein lies uh, some of the, uh, <clears throat> the problem. But anyhow, anyhow. Uh-huh. I see. It was a strange midlife turn for Miss Piggy and Kermit. They'd broken up briefly in 1990, but nobody seems to remember that. Instead, these two characters being in a relationship, a fraught relationship, is what most fans think of as a very foundation of the Muppets, a canonical fact. So... No surprise that 2015 reboot of The Muppets flopped, canceled after just a single season. It's anybody's guess what happens next with Kermit and Miss Piggy and with the rest of The Muppets. But what happens to them does matter. The characters that Jim Henson created are not just among the most recognizable in popular culture. They're also among the most loved. For the latest installment in our American Icons series... Sally Herships has the story of the Muppets. Michael Frith's apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan feels like backstage at the Muppet Show meets Santa's workshop. It is filled with the coolest knickknacks ever, like a Miss Piggy puppet on a shelf in the office with little roses. Little roses, and then she's got a little blue floral dress on. But of course she has purple gloves. Oh yeah, well she's ever a lady. Beautiful blue eyes. Hello darling. And open the glass-doored cabinet where your grandmother might keep her porcelain angel collection. Instead, there is Muppet-themed china. These were fun. These are little cups that I did for Sesame Street for each different character. Are those Happy Meal glasses? Frith isn't just a collector. This is his work. He worked with Jim Henson as an art director and creative director for years. Jim Henson is no longer with us. He died young, suddenly and tragically. Henson didn't create the Muppets by himself. He was more like a gentle shepherd, a really talented one. It took a team of writers, artists, and performers to create and put on the Muppet Show. Jim Henson would introduce me to various things and so forth and say something like, oh, and this is Michael Frith. He's kind of our, um, he's sort of, um, this is Michael Frith. Frith knows the Muppets. He loves them. But back in 1969, when he found out they were going to be on Sesame Street, he was shocked. The creation of Sesame Street to me is one of the great absurdities ever, because at that point, the Muppets were strictly adult entertainment. What they were doing was blowing each other up and biting each other's heads off and things like that. Very non-kids stuff. 
the Muppet Show characters didn't pop out of Henson's head fully formed. Some of the Muppets got their start as puppet stars of TV commercials back in the 1950s and 60s, and they could be kind of dark. Howdy, stranger. I hear you don't drink Wilkins coffee. Yeah, so what? Now, are there any other strangers in town? If you didn't try Wilkins coffee, a floppy early version of Kermit would threaten to shoot you or trample you with wild horses. Cookie Monster was originally created for General Foods, and Rolf the dog became a pitchman for Purina. Henson worked his puppets. They made the rounds of variety shows like B-list actors trying to break into Hollywood. They did guest appearances on Ed Sullivan, The Tonight Show with Steve Allen and Jimmy Dean. And of course, Like Kermit the Frog, Henson was born in Leland, Mississippi. And both Henson and Kermit were quiet and understated. After all, it was Henson that skillfully brought a piece of green felt and some ping-pong balls as eyes to life. Henson voiced Kermit and operated him. Barbara Miller is curator of the Jim Henson exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image. We're standing in the section where commercials he made her playing, looped on TV monitors. Well, it may be all right for you, Baskerville, but I like Purina dog chow. But asparagus is nourishing. It's got vitamins. Miller says it all started when he was a kid in the 40s and saw TV at a friend's house. Well, if you didn't like me the first week, why did you come back? My doctor told me to go where it's quiet. (laughs) He saw variety shows and their front men like Milton Berle and Sid Caesar. He was entranced. And it's not like he was like, I'm going to be a star or I'm going to be a director. He wanted in. He just wanted in. But he didn't want into puppets. What Jim Henson wanted was to work in television. So later, when he was in high school and a local CBS affiliate announced audition for Kid Puppeteers, he tried out. If it took puppets to get on TV, fine. A couple years later, he had his own puppet show, Sam and Friends. It aired on a local NBC affiliate, WRC-TV, in Washington, D.C. Henson was still in college. Brian J. Jones is Henson's biographer. The reason Jim was so successful so quickly was because both Jim and television didn't know what the rules were yet. Henson and TV grew up together. At that point in the 1950s, they were both pretty young. Most puppeteers at the time would plunk down their puppet theaters and point the cameras at it, like a Punch and Judy show. You'd see a little stage with a curtain and a puppeteer hovering nearby. But Henson hid the puppeteers. Instead, he filled the TV's frame with only the puppets. He even put monitors around the set so that actors could see exactly how it would look on television. And the strategy was successful, but not enough. What Henson wanted was a half-hour variety show of his own, and no one would give it to him. Nobody really thought puppets could stand on their own for a half an hour on TV. They knew they were fine for two-minute bites on Sesame Street or on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, but a half hour on their own, this was really, this was really you know, something controversial and groundbreaking. John Stone, a producer who was helping to launch Sesame Street, had worked with Henson in the past and wanted him and his puppets on board. When the show debuted, it was a hit. Ernie and Bert, Big Bird and Kermit became puppet stars. But Sesame Street was a kid's show. So Henson, who'd made all those dark, violent commercials, was now given a new label, Children's Puppeteer. Not one he wanted to be stuck with. Jim is constantly in motion throughout the early 70s, pitching to the networks, pitching to ABC, 
You know, the Muppets can work in a half-hour variety show. From the same creative minds that brought you Ralph of the Jimmy Dean show. And he finds Michael Eisner, who believes in that, and gives him, you know, gives him a shot to do a pilot, which he does. Small children will love the cute, cuddly characters. Young people will love the fresh and innovative comedy. College kids and intellectual eggheads will love the underlying symbolism of But the pilot doesn't do very well, so he gets to do another pilot for ABC, uh, which also doesn't do very well. But one producer did say yes to the Muppets. He was 30 years old, a former Laugh-In writer by the name of Lorne Michaels, and he was producing a new show. Live from New York, it's Saturday night! Henson had his chance. He would create all new characters no one would mistake for his characters on Sesame Street. And he did it. Come with us now, from the bubbling carpets to the sulfurous wasteland, from the rotting forest to the stagnant mudflats, to the land of Gorch. To tell you the truth, at 16, I didn't really realize that they were bombing. Lisa Henson is one of Jim's five kids. Scrat! Where's Scrat? There's glitches in my milk. I had to milk the damn gork on myself. <laughs> I didn't know. Later on, it was more clear to me. Where's Grant? I don't know where he is. I've been looking for him all morning. The he SNL writers didn't want to give away their best material to a bunch of puppets. Even John Belushi, who was nice to the performers, called them the mucking puppets. Nothing was happening until Lord Lou Grade, a British producer and media mogul, came into the picture. Brian J. Jones again. I think part of it is because Lou Grade and Jim were sort of, they were a generation apart almost, but they were sort of cut from the same cloth. Like, like Grade had come out of the UK version of vaudeville. Like he was, he was, he was famous for like jumping up on an on a oval-shaped table and doing the Charleston. Grade understood what an audience was seeing, just like Henson. No American network had wanted to touch it, but he gave The Muppet Show a green light. So the show was filmed entirely in England. Finally, Henson had his half-hour variety show. It's time to get things started on the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, It was a hit. But The Muppets wasn't just a show. It was a show within a show. Kermit, a stage manager, trying to get the whole crazy whirlwind zoo on stage. Miss Piggy, the star, the diva. The Muppet Show was the archetype of a stage performance, and audiences loved it. Uh, Fuzzy, what are you doing with this typewriter on my table? Kermit, I am writing the script for this week's show. But what makes you think the show needs a script? Oh, come on, come on. Every show has a script. Yeah. Well, I think they're timeless characters. Mary Valentis teaches English at the State University of New York at Albany. They go back to ancient Greece in the Seder plays. Uh, they, they are exemplified in um, Shakespeare's comedies. We're thinking The Taming of the Shrew. Um, we get into uh, Moliere's um, French farce. And, and then move up into um, showbiz couples. Kermit, the straight man, and Miss Piggy, the diva. Valenta says it is a classic pairing, a couple where one character is very flamboyant and plays off the other. Uh, well. yeah, you meant that I couldn't follow her. 
Well, Piggy, sometimes the truth hurts. Hurt? I'll show you hurt. <laughs> and that happens in some of the Greek comedies, especially in something like uh, Lysistrata. The show even had a comedian who looks like he just walked off stage somewhere in the borscht belt. He's got a pink and white polka-dotted bow tie and a pot belly, except he's a bear. Hey, we were so poor, I was born at home. After my mother saw me, she went to the hospital. The show was self-conscious, and it had a sense of irony. It built in its own critics. Two grumpy old puppet men in suits, sitting up in a balcony, ready to pan everything. You think this show constitutes cruelty to animals? Not unless you're watching it. (laughs) Henson became a celebrity. And not like a Mr. Rogers or a Captain Kangaroo. He was more like a rock star, but with puppets. The TV show was so successful, it spawned feature films and made Henson even more well-known. J. Jones says he wasn't just rich, he was also charismatic, which helped the show land big stars and helped its executive producer, David Laser, keep them happy. Women loved him. Men adored him. And there was something about Jim that people sought his acceptance, his encouragement. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. There's a great story where Ethel Merman, in fact, when she was on The Muppet Show, she's wearing this very uncomfortable dress with a lot of feathers on it. And David Laser went up to her at one point and said, you know, are you, do we need to give you a different outfit or something? And she goes, David, look, if Jim Henson wants me to wear a feather in my ass, I will wear a feather in my ass. You know, you talk to people that work with Jim, you know, you, you might be excused for thinking it's a cult. That's Dave Goals. You might recognize him by another name. Gonzo. I wish I had a coat of silk, the color of the sky. Gonzo had been created as a background character for Christmas special and then tossed into a box. He was pulled out for The Muppet Show, and the writers came up with the idea that he would be kind of a loser. Shy, rebellious, and out of place. Look down on the sea, but most of all, I wish that I someone else but me. That was exactly where I was. I was inexperienced. I had no background in show business whatsoever. And I suddenly found myself one of the stars of one of the most popular, I guess it was the most popular show in the world at the time. Goals was only in his 20s. Both he and Gonzo were young. And when a guest walked in one door, I usually walked out the other door because I just thought, I don't belong here. I'm supposed to be on the couch at my parents' house in Burbank. But one of Henson's biggest talents was his ability to spot talent and ideas. Gold says anyone, from a stagehand to the janitor, could make a suggestion, and Henson would always think about it. Forget open-plan offices. The Muppet Show was the ultimate collaborative workplace. We work in service of the best idea. So when we're shooting and anybody suggests something that sounds like it will work better, I'm going to do that. Goal says as he got older and wiser and went to therapy, Gonzo evolved and matured along with him. Eventually, Gonzo played Charles Dickens in The Muppet Christmas Carol. And that depth of character is an essential part of the show's magic. Matt Zoller cites is TV critic for New York Magazine. They're people. They're people. They're just people. You know, one of them's a frog, one of them's a pig. You know, I, I, I have no idea what Gonzo is. I don't think anybody does. But they're basically people. Sight says the Muppets remind us of ourselves. Take the relationship at the show's heart between Kermit and Piggy. 
It's really, really a dysfunctional relationship. Why, why is that a good thing? Well, okay, for starters, let's be honest here. Miss Piggy's a handful. Miss Piggy is a handful. There's just no denying that Miss Piggy is about as high maintenance as it gets. And, and also, Miss Piggy is a pathological narcissist. She really is. Like, if I were going to diagnose her, that's probably where I would start. There's a scene from the Muppet movie from 1979 when Piggy and Kermit get kidnapped by a mad scientist. Then Miss Piggy's agent calls. Yeah, Marty, what do you got? She's like, yeah, 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 uh-huh, hmm. Commercial? How much? Mm-hmm, take it. Piggy is so self-involved that even in the middle of a crisis, she is more focused on her career than on Kermit. What's coming into my mind right now is like, wow, they need to go to counseling, to like marriage counseling. Like in reality, if these were real people, this would be horrible. Like if Kermit was your friend and was like, man, I took her back again, you'd be like, dude, I can't even listen anymore, right? I would actually, if Kermit were my friend, I would set some limits. I would have to say like, look, Kermit, I love you, man, but either you need to break up with Miss Piggy or you need to never talk to me about your problems with her again. Those are your two choices. I can't have any of this grayscale. But if they were actual people that you knew rather than a frog and a pig, uh, it would be a nightmare. It would be an absolute nightmare. You wouldn't know which one of them to block first on your phone. Zoller site says things are funny, as long as they don't happen to us. And even funnier if they're happening to a puppet a little piece of felt and fabric on someone else's hand. There's always that tension in in comedy between um, catharsis and terror. A rant, like a ranting, raving lunatic, like like you get when Kermit finally loses it and does that thing where he's screaming and waving his arms. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Piggy. I'm going to fire you. Piggy, you are fired. You are fired. Piggy, you are fired. Fired. It's really funny when Kermit does it because he's a little frog and he's made out of green felt. But if it was a person, you'd want to call the police. I'm in the next number. I will cancel. Can, cancel the next number. Put on the snorers course instead. Snorers, snorers. So why is that wonderful to watch instead of, I don't know, boring? Because it's not us. It's not us. You know, you think about it. You think about, you know, uh, let's go back to this whole idea of... Um, Kermit and Miss Piggy in marriage counseling, which, God, why isn't there a whole television show about that? It's like there's a a two-way mirror and we get to watch people in couples counseling working through their problems. But if it was us in that room, if we were Kermit or we were Miss Piggy, it would be miserable. It would be a miserable experience. Michael Alsay is a therapist in New York City. What we see is Piggy dominates Kermit a lot and her ego gets the best of her. And Kermit goes along with it. It's not easy being green having to spend each day the color of the leaves he's a really warm-hearted soft-spoken tender guy and sometimes we all want to say to kermit kind of get a spine no pun intended also says one reason we love watching is because we can all relate to kermit and piggy they represent the different sides of our own personalities that we're all trying to balance Feminine versus masculine, strength versus vulnerability, but with one key difference that was a big deal in the 70s when the show was first produced. What was what's so wonderful about the Muppets is that they flipped the usual script. So Piggy represents the yang, which usually was the traditional masculine, and Kermit represents the yin, which is the traditional feminine. So that I think also it's it was a healthy message for women to see they can have it all with that. She can wear her gloves and her pearls and be a badass. Except in 2015, ABC tried to reboot The Muppet Show. And in that version, Piggy was too much for Kermit. Piggy, when we're out together, couldn't you just be my girlfriend instead of being 
you know, Miss Biggie. Oh, please, do we have to have this argument again? Can't we just skip to the part where you admit you were wrong and buy me a bracelet? Biggie, I... I can't do this anymore. What are you saying? You want to break up? It was like we just did. The show ran for one season. Then the network pulled the plug. Unlike with the recent Muppet movies, fans did not respond well. So only one month after his breakup with Miss Piggy, Kermit the Frog has a new girlfriend, and people are pissed. Uh, Her name is Denise, and Muppet fans aren't upset that Kermit has found new love, but they're mainly upset at what Denise looks like. She is younger and skinnier than Miss Piggy. To fans, Kermit and Piggy feel real, like real friends or family. And in the new show, the Muppets didn't behave the way the Muppets they know would have. The original Muppet Show is where a lot of fans first got to know the characters. It was like a golden age for the Muppets, where they came into their own. And to take it on and to get it wrong felt especially off-putting. Fans felt betrayed. Muppets creative director Michael Frith again. The best single lesson I got in in, uh, storytelling was from Ted Geisel. Not only did Frith work with Jim Henson, but he also worked with Dr. Seuss. He once said to me, "Um, you can create any world you want. It can be as fantastic as you want it to be. But once you've created that world, you have to be true to its rules. Frith says Frank Oz, who played Miss Piggy, developed detailed backstories for each character. He once described Piggy to me as having uh, uh, come from a litter of of 17 pigs, piglets, but her mother only had 16 nipples. And if you don't know that about her, I don't know that you can really express who she is. Frith says he hopes whoever is doing those characters now, in a movie or new TV show, is going to the same kinds of lengths and depths and deep thinking. Not simply, and I don't want to put any of these people down because they're terrific, but not how can I best imitate Frank or Jim or Jerry or, you know, whomever, but how can this character truly live? Because that's what makes the Muppets truly magical. The Muppets wouldn't have existed without Jim Henson. So the challenge for the past two decades has been, how do they live on without him? Do the Muppets stay true to Henson's original vision or evolve now that he's gone? Disney owns the Muppets now. Ironically, the idea of Muppet viability was something Jim Henson thought about when he was still alive. It's hard to say how much, how long they'll live. I, I think this is something that we're waiting to see from the audience. That's Henson in the 1984 documentary Henson's Place, six years before he died suddenly and unexpectedly from complications of pneumonia. He was only 53. If the audience wants these characters to continue to live, they, they will. And if the audience gets tired of them, they'll probably go away. I think it all, always comes back to Jim. He had a philosophy that drove him, and he didn't talk about it much, but it was, it was sort of about um, there's enough in this world for everyone. We should be generous and share. Um, we should celebrate diversity. And he created his company in that model. And it's a great model for the world. I mean, the world could use more of that, more shared experience. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? 
Elizabeth Hyde Stevens teaches classes on Jim Henson at the Muppets at Boston University. She says in order to get to the Muppet magic, you need a certain amount of practicality. She thinks that's a possible interpretation of what the famous song, The Rainbow Connection, is all about. Have you been half asleep and have you heard voices? I've heard them calling my name. sort of about this, you know, this magic that they're supposed to make happen. And then the chorus is, someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers. Sometimes I think maybe the rainbow connection is between, you know, your, your dreams and reality and, and being able to actually make it happen. You can see a video of Michael Frith in his amazing New York apartment slash Muppets shrine on our website, studio360.org. The producer of that story, Sally Herships, is a regular contributor to Marketplace and the director of the radio program at the Columbia University School of Journalism. Our American Icon series is made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Studio 360. You just heard about how the Muppets kind of flopped on Saturday Night Live. But just as the Muppets remain an institution four decades later, so does Saturday Night Live. And SNL is the venue for our first installment of a new feature that we're calling Unsung Heroes. They're stories about people who work behind the scenes in art and entertainment, people whose work is essential, but who rarely get much credit. Live from New York, it's Saturday Night! Saturday Night Live started when I was about 10 years old. My father was really into comedy. He would wake us up sometimes to watch it if there was some a good host on. Steve Martin was always a host where we would have to watch. Hey, we're having some fun now, eh, kids? <laughs> I'm Wally Ferriston. I am the owner-operator of New York City Cue Cards. I'm the head cue card guy at Saturday Night Live for the last 27 years, going on 28. Well, I went to Syracuse for writing because I wanted to write for TV and film. I was looking for work in TV. And my brother Spike, who was working on Saturday Night Live at the time as a receptionist, told me the cue card people needed, needed a cue card person. My first show at Saturday Night Live as a cue card guy was Kyle McLaughlin was the host. I was holding six cards in a Mike Myers sprocket sketch. Welcome to Sprocket. I'm your host, Dieter. So I was over a camera holding, and my boss was standing behind me. He was there to make sure I didn't screw up. I am so full of anticipation that my genitals have sucked up into my body cavity. <laughs> we walked back to cue cards. He said to me, your entire body was shaking. But those cue cards stayed ex super still. He's like, I don't know how you did it. <laughs> Before I begin, would you like to touch my monkey? I would be honored. Touch him! After that, they started testing me, threw me in three sketches the next week. And for some reason, 
I just picked up on holding naturally, and um, I was good at it. Being a good cue card holder, you have to be aware of where the camera is, where the actors are, where the light on the on the cue cards, and just always ready to adapt because the actors might not hit their line or the cameras might not be on their spot or something might be off. Wally has such a huge job because the cue cards are the whole scene. We can't memorize the stuff. Could, the lines could change at any minute leading up to the live show. So it's really important that we all be reading off of those cue cards. And hello and thank it to you. Let's pop a look in at that weekend. I'm Vanessa Bayer. I was a cast member at Saturday Night Live for seven seasons. Big Sunday skies for you. Let's pop it all the way next weekend, yeah? That's a wow. Pressure's going to push it and it'll come down. I feel like he's doing a lot of almost mime work behind the camera, like making sure everyone's looking at the right cards and if someone forgot their line, making sure they see their line and everything like that. Timing, as far as flipping cue cards, is probably the key to it. And it's what a lot of the um, actors, like Seth Meyers, talks about why he uses cue cards. And he always says, well, Wally knows my rhythms. You know, there is a technology that exists called teleprompters that often people in the audience, when I take questions from them, want to know why we stick with Wally when we could move over to, you know, this new technology. It was announced this week that a musical version of the movie Rocky will be coming to Broadway this year. So if you loved Rocky and you love lavish Broadway musicals, who are you? I'm Seth Meyers former cast member and head writer at Saturday Night Live and current host of Late Night. I know his rhythms. I've been working with him for 14 years now. Wally is, first of all, a wonderful energy to have on set. And also, we I have a lot of faith in the fact that there's never been a technical glitch with Wally, whereas the few times that I've done award shows where I've had to use teleprompter, invariably something goes wrong. It's Saturday Night Live. When the host comes in for Saturday Night Live each week, I get to work with them one-on-one -on -one from Thursday to Saturday. A lot of them have never worked with cue cards before, so we work on eyeline and we work on size. Sometimes they can't read very well. We had a, a host, Lara Flynn Boyle, back in the day. Ladies and gentlemen, Lara Flynn Boyle. And uh, she came up to me and told me that she was colorblind, dyslexic, and nearsighted. Basically, what I was doing was I was going into a dressing room after every sketch, running cards with her multiple times so she would get used to it. And um, we, we got through it, but it was a lot of work. I'm not going to describe the size of Jack Nicholson's penis. Not right now. Do you know how good his Laker tickets are? The specific style of writing that we do is block printing. It's all capital letters. We'll put directions on there. We'll put um, stage directions like sit, stand, cross. Whoever's doing it, we'll put that in their color and we'll put it in a box so they know not to say it. My buddy Charles Barkley, he, said, he read the words and they said cross. <laughs> and I was like, no, you're not supposed to say cross, buddy. You walk, you cross on the cross. And he's like, oh, okay, thanks. Good evening, ladies and remaining gentlemen. I hosted the Golden Globes last year, and even though that's a teleprompter show, we brought out Wally, and he was standing with the monologue on cue cards in a tuxedo next to the teleprompter just in case something went wrong. And nothing did, but I was so much happier knowing that Wally was there than I would have been if I knew I was just counting on a piece of technology. You know, I, it's really a credit to my writing staff more than anything else as to why Wally's in sketches, but they were quickly enamored with him. 
as a personality and as somebody who could, you know, deliver lines. And although it would have been such a, a bitter twist if a man who held cue cards his whole life couldn't read a line off a cue card, but he's very good at that too. I have been Wally the cue card guy in many SNL sketches. I have been Wally the cue card guy on 30 Rock. Uh, I've played Wally the cue card guy on Seth Meyers and sketches. We have a bit on our show called Crew Poetry where different actual crew members read poems and Wally is always the last of the crew poems. And lastly, our cue card guy, Wally. Slumbering Angel by Wally Ferris. And they're always a little disturbing. And disturbing plays well with Wally because he has a very friendly face and does not look like a person that would have a sort of dark life. And yet when he reads his disturbing poems, you also buy that, oh, he's one of those people who, who looks like a nice person but is actually a monster. Every night, I sneak into Seth's apartment and watch him sleep. What do you dream, sweet prince? A liberal utopia? A Trump-free life? It feels pretty crazy to be working for Saturday Night Live for so long because, like I said, I w I've started watching Saturday Night Live when I was 10. I've been working on the show for 27 years, going on 28 years now, and it's just been an amazing position, and I couldn't have envisioned it when I was a child working on this show. And, you know, wanting to be a writer is one thing, but I think the experiences and the people that I've met and worked with as a cue card guy far outshine anything I could have done as a writer um, and I could nowhere have the same experiences as a writer that I have it has it as a cue card guy. Now I am as happy as a little girl. <laughs> Samantha Lee produced that story. Do you know some anonymous master whose job is essential to making works of art or entertainment, but who doesn't get public recognition for that? If so, please tell us about them in a voice memo or email and send that to incoming at studio360.org. The singer-songwriter Angelique Kidjo is one of the global superstars of African music. She grew up in Benin and then moved to Paris as a young woman in the early 1980s, both to escape Benin's tyrannical communist regime and to study music. Since then, she has won three Grammys for songs such as this. But for her newest album, Kicho is doing something different. Completely different. She has recorded a song-by-song -song cover of the 1980 Talking Heads album, Remain in Light. And as a long-time big fan of both Talking Heads and Anjali Kidjo um, since she came on the show a few years ago. I could not wait to talk to her about this project. Angelique, welcome back to Studio 360. Thanks for having me back. You must remember the very first time you heard Remain in Light? Hmm. Yeah. Where, when, exactly what was happening? Well, it was not, certainly not in Benin because in the 80s, we were not having any music but propaganda music from the morning to the evening and you wake up around the clock and I get sick of it. 
Um, and when I arrived in Paris, actually, in 1983. And you were like 22, 23, 23. years old. 23. And, um, and then we went to, I went to a party with a couple of friends. And somebody played the song Once in a Lifetime. And I'm like, hmm, this sound like really African. And, and then I loved it. And so did you buy the album and, and start listening to I it? I didn't have the money. I was broke. Oh, I was really? student broke. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't buy So the- when did you hear the other 11 songs? I heard them later on, actually, when I moved to America. So I listened to the whole album at that time in the 90s. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, I want to play the opening track of the Talking Heads album, which is Born Under Punches. <laughs> And listeners should know that you're virtually dancing to it right here at, at uh, the table. Um, it was a new uh, direction for them at the time. And well, what, what, is it, what is going on here? When you heard that, for instance, uh, what did you hear? What speaks to you about that song? Oh, man, what I hear that, I hear a completely different song. I hear the drums, I hear the melody, and I hear the message. Take a look at these hands. It was one of the things that hits me the most because it's so photographic about how people come and dig their hands and take everything out of Africa and how corruption have been creating poverty everywhere. For me, corruption everywhere, shape or form, is a crime against humanity. That's in that song? Oh, yeah. Yeah? I'm a government man. These hands speaks. That speaks why. Because yeah. you have your hand on the money and no. you squeeze everybody out of it. And once you say that, I get that. And and in fact the song becomes less abstruse to me. Now I wanna I wanna play a little bit of the, later on in that song, the original version followed by your version. <laughs> this is Talking Heads. And this is Angelique Kidjo. Congo. Congo. Your version of this song, uh, there, you wrote some whole new lyrics. The backup singers are singing different lyrics in one of the indigenous languages of Benin, right, Fawn? Yeah. What I'm saying in that song, that Zoe is fire can make you dizzy as an alcohol. 
You don't know how to control fire. Don't start a fire you can't stop. And that's what is going on in the world. People are mad and tired of trying to climb a mountain with no asperity. I mean, how long is this going to stand for a minority of people that siphon money every second away from programs that can help our children? I mean, I'm not even talking about Africa. I'm talking about I can tell. I can tell. I think that we have government, especially this government in place, is raging war on poor people and middle class. And we sit down here and we do nothing. I mean, I come from a dictatorship. And here in America, I am 30 or 40 years later facing the same kind of thing. No, not quite, right? Oh, well, you'll see. Well, let's let's play uh, Once in a Lifetime, the original Talking Heads version, and then and then we'll hear yours. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by. And you may ask yourself, where is my large automobile? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. Letting the days go by. And listeners, I just want you to know, you, you didn't hear the exact record version because Angelique was singing along with herself. <laughs> Sorry. No, I love that. It's a special, special <laughs> version. Um. In your version of Once in a Lifetime, what additions did you do there? Were there new lyrics? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, like what? what, what what's new there <laughs> that we can hear? Well, if you listen to it to the end, you'll hear it. Um, I brought some African lyrics to it, and I brought also Afrobeat into it. The thing that is really important for me was, for that song particularly, because I wanted to be so joyful, I wanted to bring a music a song that is talking about a rhythm called Palongo in, in, my, in my country where we dance together. And I said, here I come. In my language, Miwa elo, wa e miwa, miwa elo, wa e miwa, Palongo, black potondo, nundo mi. We are greeting you with the rhythm of Palongo. So I'm saying, Gae mesena mido. I see my time, this time that I was born to spend on this earth, is a given time by the Almighty. No one have any say on that. When my time comes, I leave. When yours come, you leave. And is that fun? Is that the language? Or yes, is that, fun. Yeah. Is, that, is that the language you grew of up with? Of my father. Along with French? Yeah, yeah. I speak four different languages from my country. I speak Yufon, Gun, Mina, Yoruba. Huh. Well, that's... And you had French to that, and you had English. I studied German for five years. Really? Yeah, so you, seven? You got seven languages going? <sighs> I don't even know. <laughs> I, I speak every language a little bit. Uh, you decide that now is the time in 2017, 2018, you're going you're gonna to do this. Uh, 
because why? Had that particular song and album been so part of your youth? Or what, what was it about this album that made you decide to do this? I mean, when I, I, start, uh, I listened to it in the 90s, I, uh, I still feel that calling, African calling in that album. Uh, there's something about it that I could not finger point it. Uh, and then I listened to it back not long ago because I wake up a couple of days in a row going, I'm like, this song, is it going to leave me alone one day or is it going to keep on coming? I didn't know the lyrics at that time. Right. And then I'm like, what is that, by the way? And I start talking to friends. They say, but this is Talking Head album. I'm like, yeah, but I listened to it, but what is it about? So I listened back to it and then it hits me. By listening to it back with all the things that I've, I've been traveling around the world, I start listening to the words and I'm like, ooh, this is profound. And people say, what, do you understand those lyrics? They are absurd. I said, they are not. Really? Because they aren't, they, aren't, they aren't easy to understand. They're, a little, oh, they're, no. they're extremely poetic and almost uh, kind of nonsensical. No, no it's, it has it made sense to me. Yeah, yeah. It made sense. Everything makes sense to me. Now, did you by that time you surely knew that that the mm-hmm. producer Brian Eno and David mm-hmm. Byrne had been influenced by West African music? Yeah, I knew. I knew that. I mean, I made research and I, I knew. There are people back in the eighties, still no doubt, even more perhaps now that the the phrase cultural appropriation exists, who say, "Oh, David Byrne, Brian Eno, how you stole this music from West Africa?" I take it you don't buy that. As a problem? I don't buy that because when the album was released, they made clear in the press release where the inspiration comes from. They acknowledge it. Right. It's not like they were quiet about it. It wasn't like Elvis and Chuck Elvis, Berry. Elvis, <laughs> Elvis steal the songs, put his name on it, right. and call himself a rock and roll star. I mean, that is not even cultural appropriation. Is Thick. Swiping, yeah. It's swiping, it's, yeah. it's stealing from people. So this was respectful and, and explicit. As long, and, yeah. as long as you acknowledge and recognize where that inspiration comes from, I don't call it uh, cultural appropriation, I call it uh, cultural expansion. So the, the West African influence on the record, is that what attracted you to, to this album and, and inspired the project to remake it? For me, it doesn't. It was not the most important thing for me. Uh-huh. It was the, the era when the album was released that was important, because what I feel sometimes, I mean, I feel the urge of moving, but also I feel a lot of anxiety in it, and and it's just like well, that's of, talking heads. It puts you not comfortably sitting, and it just like ew. It makes you think. Right. It makes you question why am I feeling this feeling right. and then I made researches and I realized that the, that album particularly had been written in the era of Reagan when Reagan was raging a war against yeah. against uh, drug drug right. war and also against social yeah. safety net for every American mental uh, disease center disappear it's interesting though that you see this album and Talking Heads for that matter as 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 making political music because certainly at the time they weren't that wasn't regarded as what they were doing I mean Here's the clash making political music, not talking heads, right? You yeah, know? but yeah, but that's what I that's what I felt. I hear you. That's what I felt. And and listening back today, it becomes a little bit more even relevant mm-hmm. because this anxiety everybody is living in is not only the adults that are living in, the children also are feeling it. And it has been something that was really disturbing to me as a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador, what I see outside of America. The stress the kids go through, the pain kids go through because of lack of real leadership and, 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 and providing for the children, I start feeling the same here. And I'm like, 
what is going on? Let's take a step back and see what is this all about? How can music play a role for people to find the strength and also the joy to live? Because if we all are in gloom and misery, we're never going to move forward. Right. The, the thing that matters to me was to take that iconic album to this present time where we need light. What a pleasure. And what a pleasure this uh, album is. I'm, I'm really glad you did such a strange and uh, one-of-a-kind thing. I love it. Me too. Thank you so much. Great seeing Good you again. Good to be here again. Angelique Kidjo's new album, Remain in Light, is out on June 8th. And that's it for today's show. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. (laughs) PRI Public Radio International.